Welcome to the Under the Sea Bass podcast. On this episode, we go to Iraq. The country of Iraq, located almost dead smack in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula, has had a pretty rough 15 years, and that being an understatement, with unfortunately most of the twists and turns in this country resulting in violence, destruction, and ultimately despair for its citizens. The change for improvement that was promised after the 2003 US-led invasion and the consequential years of violence has not made Iraq the success story people were predicting back in the early 2000s. Instead, it became a hotbed for civil wars, the emergence of terrorist organizations like ISIS and rampant political corruption by leaders whose citizens say are simply puppets of either the United States or Iran. And though Iraq is certainly not as violent as a country as it was, say, five years ago, there is still extreme poverty for the majority of the population. Iraqis have protested their displeasure against the government numerous times in the past decade, but for the sake of this episode, let's talk about the most recent major protests that started this past October, the largest one since the end of the Gulf War in 1991. Gunfire in central Baghdad as Iraqi security forces confront protesters for a second day. Throughout Wednesday, Iraqi security forces placed a ring of armor around Tahrir Square, the focal point for the protesters. But they weren't deterred by the show of force. They came in large numbers and fought running battles in nearby streets and in other neighborhoods. Their message to government leaders is simple. Our demands? We want work. We want work. If they do not want to treat us as Iraqis, then tell us we are not Iraqi and we will find other nationalities and migrate to other countries. We are demanding a change. We want the downfall of the whole government. This series of demonstrations in Iraq is being dubbed as the Tishrin Revolution. It began as a culmination of protests stemming from 16 years of governmental corruption, high unemployment and inefficient public services like not-so-great healthcare, lack of electricity and the lack of repairing badly damaged infrastructure. Think of it this way. It took the government 13 years to remove the feet of Saddam Hussein's statue that was brought down in 2003. Reconstruction in Iraq has been painfully slow. These socioeconomic grievances morphed into larger anti-corruption protests as now the people are calling for the resignation of the Prime Minister Adil Abdul Mahdi mostly because they feel he is too friendly with Iran, as this Iraqi woman explains. Iran interfered with our affairs. Now our fire spreads to Iran. Why is Iran interfering? Iraq is a sovereign nation. We want the sovereignty for our country. Why do they interfere? We and the young people are the ones who make decisions for our country. We do not want this government and we do not want their political parties to interfere. And with good suspicions, on November 18th, The Intercept released a report detailing just how Iran's leaders, notably Major General Qasim Soleimani, who is the head of Iran's powerful Quds Force, would use spy networks to practically infiltrate every aspect of Iraq's social, political, and economic life. This special relationship the Prime Minister had with Soleimani only solidified Iran's growing influence in Iraq. It was even said that Iraq couldn't choose a prime minister without Iran's blessing. So, best to keep that in mind. But back to the protest. 
The prelude to the protest began a few days before when on September 24th, PhD and master's students who were peacefully protesting high unemployment and the lack of job opportunities at the Prime Minister's building in Baghdad were shown on video being dispersed by security forces using water cannons and armored vehicles that led to citizens across the country condemning the violence online. Then a few days later, Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi did something quite controversial. He issued a decision to transfer the commander of the Iraqi counterterrorism force, Lieutenant General Abdel Wahab al-Saidi, a man who led Iraqi forces to liberating the city of Mosul against ISIS, to the Ministry of Defense something he and other people deemed as a demotion. Then, when security forces tried to prevent a statue unveiling for al-Saidi, demands for the resignation of the prime minister were intensified, as people really started to feel like Iran was the one calling the shots within the Iraqi government. They say Iran did not want al-Saidi in charge, but rather an Iranian loyalist. This was Prime Minister Abdul Mahdi's response. I am ready to go wherever our brotherly protesters are stationed and meet them or send them envoys to other locations in other provinces without any armed forces. I will go and meet them without weapons and sit with them for hours to listen to their demands. The following day, violent protests broke out throughout major cities across Iraq, including its capital Baghdad, around the popular Tahrir Square. In the month of October, thousands clashed with security forces with some burning down political buildings, blocking roads, oil facilities, and major shipping ports. On October 24th, thousands more attempted to enter Iraq's Green Zone, which is a highly militarized zone home to almost all of Iraq's major government buildings and foreign embassies. Security forces responded with shooting hot water cannons and live ammunition, killing about 50 people that day. Over 100 people died in October alone, with some even pinning the blame on Iranian-backed militias responsible for the deaths of prominent figures in the movement. Then on November 2nd, protesters stormed the Iranian consulate building in the city of Karbala and tried to set that building on fire. It didn't end up in flames, but they did manage to replace the Iranian flag with an Iraqi flag. The government responded with more arrests and shootings, eventually taking a play from the Iranian playbook by shutting off all internet access across the country. On November 27th, protesters stormed another Iranian consulate, this time in the city of Najaf, and successfully burned that building down. Two days later, on November 29th, after reports claimed over 300 casualties since protests began, Prime Minister Adil Abdul Mahdi announced his resignation, a major demand by the protesters fulfilled. Iraq's Prime Minister Adil Abdul Mahdi says he will present his resignation to parliament so that lawmakers can choose a new government. That move comes after weeks of anti-government protests. The number of deaths in the unrest has now surpassed 400. Demonstrators across the country have been taken to the streets since early October to protest government corruption and unemployment. However, the protests in Iraq are far from over. Abdul Mahdi will stay on as caretaker, whatever that means, until a new prime minister has been named in new elections. But the demands of the mainly young protesters do not stop with the prime minister's resignation. They want a complete overhaul of Iraq's political system that was put in place since 2003. So, to better understand why the rage is so strong in Iraq and to provide a deeper background as to what led to these violent confrontations in recent months, let's travel back to the year 2003. The United States invades Iraq. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, Coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. 
Ah yes, the infamous weapons of mass destruction that was never found. After three weeks, the US, along with help from 30 other countries, completed its invasion of Iraq. Months later, their autocratic president-slash-dictator Saddam Hussein was captured and killed. It's important to note that Saddam was the leader of the Sunni Muslim Ba'ath Party, a party that gave fundamental rights and education to Sunni Muslims in the country, which was about just 20% of the country's population. Meanwhile, continuing to oppress the majority Shiite population, who really haven't had political power in over a hundred years. At first, most Iraqis rejoiced, especially Iraqi Kurds and the majority Shiite Muslims. They were glad to see the man who ruled Iraq with an iron fist and would execute anyone who would dare speak negative of him gone. Others, however, were skeptical of the US intentions in the country. From the years 2003 to 2011, Iraq was pretty much an American military occupation being controlled by various political factions, all put in place by the United States. What the US didn't take into account when making these decisions was the religious and ethnic makeup of Iraq. Most of the political factions who controlled Iraq during this time period, like the Iraqi National Assembly and the United Iraqi Alliance, were politicians who were Shiite Muslims, a majority demographic in Iraq, and thus at times possibly influenced and backed by Iran, a Shiite-led country. And again, now giving Shiite Muslims political power in Iraq for the first time in over a hundred years. This certainly did not fly with the minority Sunni Muslims in Iraq. They went from having all the power under Saddam to no power whatsoever. So, as a result, different Sunni militias, with the help of Al-Qaeda, led an insurgency against the government by many times setting off car bombs, mostly at places of worship for Shiite Muslims. It became a sectarian battle in Iraq throughout the mid to late 2000s between mostly Sunnis and Shiites. And trust me, there is a lot to uncover there, but due to the religious complications of the matter, I would rather not get into further detail. I do recommend looking it up sometime. The key thing to remember here though is that the United States removed Sunni politicians from power and in its place put Shiite politicians in the hopes of establishing some form of stable government and democracy. But spoiler alert, it did not work. Overall, throughout the years, this violence and instability would force the United States to slowly but surely give up some control of Iraqi territory and hand it over to the government of Iraq. Since not only were the Iraqis tired of American troops in their country, Americans at home were tired of the war in Iraq in general. Fast forward to 2010, President Obama announced the withdrawal of U.S. combat troops in Iraq. The rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. After nearly nine years, America's war in Iraq will be over. Most deemed the U.S. occupation of Iraq as a huge failure. Iraq was still broken into religious factions, with mostly Shiite Muslims in the south and Sunni Muslims in the north, along with an autonomous region of Kurds in the north-north Iraq. Think of it kind of like Game of Thrones, with different regions in Iraq broken up into various houses, and Westeros, or in this case Baghdad, being controlled by the House of Shiites. And just like in the Game of Thrones, either you win or you die. Or you have a terrible final season and ruin something so entertainingly beautiful. If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> Anyways, in 2012, with the U.S. now mostly out of the picture, major protests broke out by Sunni Muslims. Frustrated with the lack of improvements in the country, and particularly their marginalization and discrimination in the country by the government. Plus, they were still unhappy with Iran's growing influence in Iraq. In 2013 and 2014, anti-government insurgencies by again mostly Sunni militias broke out in the city of Fallujah. Known as the Anbar Campaign, this radical insurgency gave rise to none other than the group we know as the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, or ISIL, aka ISIS. From 2014 to 2017, Iraq endured another war. 
This time, the Iraq Civil War was waged between the Iraqi military, backed by the United States, Canada, some European countries, Jordan, Morocco, plus Iran and Russia, all versus ISIS, who were gaining huge momentum and swallowing up large swaths of land in Iraq. I'm sure you remember that time period. In the end, the Iraqi military claimed victory over ISIS in 2017, putting an end to yet another war in Iraq riddled with destruction. This is Liberation Day in Iraq. Victory flags are being raised after the Prime Minister announced the final defeat of ISIS. The extremists have been driven from the last pocket of territory they still held, a stretch of ground along the Syrian border. It's hard to pinpoint an exact number, but according to Statista, since 2003, over 200,000 Iraqi civilians have been killed due to the violence in their country. That's a lot of innocent people, people killed just for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. But now with the occupation and subsequent war over, Iraqis have finally tried to find some semblance of normalcy in their country. The main things they have certainly not forgotten about is how corrupt their government has been, and the numbers lie within the economy. Iraq still pumps over 4 million barrels of crude oil a day, making it the second largest producer of crude oil in the region behind Saudi Arabia. Oil accounts for over 88% of Iraq's GDP. The money the government has received as part of their oil revenue have sit at the top of the political chain. Those in charge keep the money, essentially. The majority of the population have not reaped these benefits. Some even go as far to say that life was much better in Iraq when Saddam was in charge. Protests about high unemployment, which sits around 36%, corruption, poverty, lack of basic services, and sectarianism between Shiites and Sunni Muslims have broken out in Iraq in 2016, 2018, and again, recently just a few months here in 2019. The people have grown tired of their inefficient leaders, and with good reason. After an invasion, occupation, and two wars, Iraqis want nothing more than just to live a normal life without extreme poverty. Some think back nostalgically to an Iraq that, although they were under a brutal regime with Saddam Hussein, their country was at least stable and functioning, as these Iraqis would claim. The current situation is not promising. Each side has a different opinion. The security situation is bad and politicians only seek power. They don't think about the Iraqi people. We got rid of the dictatorship and wars, but we lost security and safety. For us teachers, it got to a point where we only got the job done instead of being creative. We used to aspire to further improve education and all levels of life, but what is happening is preventing us from doing what we want. Overall, in my humble opinion, Iraq still has ways to go before their full transition from a dictatorship to a representative democracy can ever be deemed as a success story. The prime minister resigning is a positive first step, but that won't matter if the next person in charge replacing him is just another crony under Iran's sphere of influence. Just a few weeks ago, Iraqi President Barham Saleh in a televised address promised electoral reforms that would make the government more representative and break up some of those political factions tied to Iran. But those are just empty promises until the real needs of the people are met. And it especially doesn't help when the government continues to kill their own people while injuring thousands. A possible solution would be to have both Shiite and Sunni representatives in government, though even that is tricky. One thing is for sure though, you want to keep the Iraqi people from protesting, maybe it's best to begin by rebuilding the destroyed infrastructure. Get rid of those torn down buildings that still serve as a harsh reminder to all Iraqis of the chaos and destruction the country has endured in the past 16 years. I think that would be a good start. This has been Under the Sea Bass on Iraq. Thank you for listening.
Thank you all for listening to episode six of Under the Sea Bass, this one on Iraq. Special thank yous to my sources on this episode, Jen Kirby of Vox, the BBC for their timeline on the Iraqi protest, CBS News, DW News, Al Jazeera English's Imran Khan, Time Magazine's Rachel Bunyan, this collaboration of journalists from The Intercept, James Risen, Tim Marengo, Farnaz Fasihi, Murtaza Hussein, and Ronan Bergman, and various trusted sources on Wikipedia. Whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other streaming platform, I sincerely thank you for taking the time and learning more about these global protests. Feel free to send me an email with comments or questions at undertheseabasspodcast at gmail.com. Until then, continue to expand your mind, join the movement, and learn all about social movements here on Under the Sea Bass. Have a great day.